Well, as we've been thinking this morning, today is Remembrance Day. Are they designed to help us remember the sacrifices made by so many in the wars of the 20th century, right up to the present day? And the organization behind the Poppy Appeal um, is the Royal British Legion. And it's interesting, this year, maybe more than other years I remember, they know that they have their work cut out for them to help people remember the wars of the past. Because remembering anything in our modern world is always going to be a challenge. We live in a world of information overload, where it's always the newest thing that captures our attention, always the most recent event or innovation that is celebrated. And as the generations that experience, say, the two world wars of the 20th century grow old and die out, the poppy appeal has to work hard to engage the attention of younger people for whom maybe there's less of a sense of, of gratitude, less of a sense of what was won in those struggles, to demonstrate also why their work of supporting veterans and their families is worth supporting. And this year the poppy appeal came out with a number of posters, quite striking posters designed to do that. And this is the one that sort of stood out for me. It's a bit grainy there, but I hope you can see that. It's a picture of a woman called Tina Thompson with her two-year-old son, Aidan, walking on a beach. But instead of her husband and his father walking with him, there is a man made of poppies. That's because Tina's husband, um, Mick, was a soldier and he died in an accident in Cyprus in 2005. And the idea of that poster is that the poppies that people buy can help to begin to fill the gap left by the death of Mick, that they can begin to support Tina as she raises her son, that they begin to provide emotional support and financial support for that family, that the poppies can attempt to fill a gap that is left by the death of Tina's image, a man made of poppies where a husband should be, where a father should be. And I think it conveys something of the pain and the loss that we remember on Remembrance Day. The question of what happens to people left behind by that. It's a poster that I think powerfully communicates why there is a Remembrance Day at all. Because people die. Because people leave one another. Because people are taken from one another. See, Remembrance Day is a time to confront that truth. It's a time to confront the fragility of life, the frailty of life, to confront loss, to confront the fact that people kill one another and are killed. And as such, it's a time that many people feel uncomfortable. Remembrance Day exists because war exists and people don't like to think about that. And Christians can be just like that as well. We don't like to acknowledge the suffering that goes on around us every day. And in fact, I think there's a widespread suspicion held by many in our world that Christians are people who can't cope with pain or loss. I've met people who've argued that Christianity is just a crutch for people who can't cope with the sort of harsh realities that Remembrance Day is all about. The sort of realities this poster reminds us of, of loss, of families left behind. See, surely they think, well, Christians are too busy singing their nice songs and telling one another how much God loves them to confront the pain that is around them in the world. Surely Christians will shy away from a day like Remembrance Day and will seek shelter in the platitudes of their book, the Bible. 
Well, I want to take us to our Bibles this morning, to the psalm that Ruth read out for us earlier, Psalm 90. But I hope you saw as Ruth read that out, that this is not a psalm that shies away from the realities of death and loss and pain. See, on the contrary, Psalm 90 is starkly aware of those things. See, for most of this psalm, we are forced to confront a dying world where human life is always just too brief, where people die and are forgotten. Or perhaps most surprisingly of all, God allows that to happen. God even wills that to happen as part of his judgment on sinful humanity. See, Psalm 90 is a very sobering meditation on the reality of death and loss in this world. And it's only after meditating on those truths, only after confronting the pain that is part of living in a fallen world, that the psalm lifts our eyes to the hope that God gives to his people. See, Psalm 90 doesn't shy away from death and suffering, and neither should Christians. But Psalm 90 also refuses to let death and suffering have the final word. And neither should Christians. It ends with an exploration of hope. An exploration of hope that is the only true answer to pain and to suffering and the brevity of human life. And it's a hope that is provided by the same God who does allow that suffering, but who has great purposes prepared for his people and for his creation. And I hope we're going to see that it is a hope that can transform our experiences in this world, even on a day like Remembrance Day. So you're going to turn to Psalm 90 with me here. So Psalm 90 is described as a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And it's one of only two Psalms in the Bible that are described explicitly as prayers. And it's the only Psalm in the Psalter attributed to Moses. And as we read it, we actually get to glimpse the relationship Moses enjoyed with God and how Moses prayed for the people of Israel under his care. And traditionally, this is a prayer that's composed near the end of Moses' life, perhaps composed just as the people of Israel are about to enter the Promised Land after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And the the privilege for us, as we read this psalm, is that we get to benefit from the experiences and the insight of one of the great heroes of Scripture and to learn from Moses how to pray to God in a fallen world where death is all around us. I want us to see that Moses teaches us vital truths here in our relationship with God that can sustain us in the face of loss and pain. Because it's been said elsewhere, if you live long enough, you will lose someone close to you. If you live long enough, you will suffer in some way. But this prayer can prepare us for those times and give us an answer to those times. And that's why Moses is recorded here for us. So Moses' prayer begins, verses 1 and 2, by acknowledging that when we pray, we pray to an eternal God, verses 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And see, this is Moses looking back over God's dealings with his people Israel up to the time of the Exodus. See, throughout all generations, Moses says, 
God has been their God. God has been their dwelling place. When you look at the Old Testament, you see this whole, the whole nation of Israel begins with a man called Abraham who is called by God back in Genesis 12 and promised by God that God will make him into a great nation, that God will bless him and God more than that will bless all the nations of the world through Abraham and his family. But when you look at Abraham's life, he lived his whole life as a nomad. He lived in tents. He never owned the land that God promised to him. Then later, Abraham's children grow up. They grow into quite a large family. But again, they never own the land that they are in. They travel to Egypt. They live as honoured guests of Pharaoh. But still, they do not live in the land God promised them. And that is not their home. And then, at the time of Moses, hundreds of years later, they are still in Egypt, but they are slaves in Egypt. They are longing for freedom. They are longing for a land of their own. They are longing for a home. But all that time, Moses reminds them here, God has been their home when they have had no other. Lord, you have been our dwelling place for all generations. When Abraham lived in that tent, you, God, were his real home. When Isaac lived in a tent, you were his real home. When we lived in Egypt, you, Lord, you were our home. That is a reminder Moses gives them as they prepare to enter the promised land that God has been faithful. God has been with them. God has been their dwelling place. And then came the Exodus, the high point of the Old Testament. God remembered his promises to Abraham. He rescued his people with power from Egypt. He set them free. They were no longer slaves. He brought them out of that land, heading towards the land he had promised to give them. Finally, they feel, they are going home. They are going to the home God promised to them. And surely, Moses and the Israelites must have thought, now that we have been set free from slavery, life will be wonderful from now on. More than that, life will be a triumph, for God has triumphed over Pharaoh, and now everything will be all right. But look at verses 3 to 6. You turn men back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has gone by, or like a watch in the night. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. Though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it is dry and withered. In the wilderness, Moses and the Israelites quickly learned that being rescued by God did not excuse them from the consequences of living in a fallen world. Even as God's rescued people, they still lived in a world of death and loss and sin. And the same goes for Christians today. We all live in a dying world. See, after God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, they very quickly rejected God. They sinned against God at Mount Sinai. They made and worshipped a golden calf instead of God. And as a result, God judged them and made them spend 40 years in the wilderness before entering the promised land of Canaan. And in that time, the entire generation who rejected God at Mount Sinai died. So it was their children who entered the promised land 40 years later. 
So the Israelite community led by Moses in the desert, it is slowly dying out in front of Moses' eyes. Death for Moses was a constant reminder of their rejection of God. Every time an Israelite died in the desert, they were forced to acknowledge just how badly they had rejected the God who'd rescued them from Egypt. Death was that reminder for them, a reminder of their sin. And the difficult truth this psalm gives us is it is the same for us today also. There's a truth taught in the Bible that many of us shy away from. And it is that the world in which we live is under God's judgment. For Moses and the Israelites, the starkest reminder of God's judgment was that they were losing people. And it is the same for us today. So Remembrance Day is a commemoration of the thousands who have died in war and conflict. And for Christians, that should be a signpost for us that things are not as they should be. Death is a reminder. This is not what God intended. Our world has rejected God. And so we are being forced to face the consequences. Moses prays in verse 9 of the psalm, All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. And Paul's equivalent for that in the New Testament comes in Romans 1 where he says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. See, in a very real way, we can echo Moses' words of verse 9 when we think about our world. All our days pass away under your wrath. We watch news reports of deaths in Iraq and Afghanistan. We've prayed for those countries already. We hear of natural disasters like famine, like flood in Mexico. We hear of selfish cruelty of the rich towards the poor. We see political leaders clinging on to power at the expense of their people in places like Zimbabwe, Pakistan. We hear of business leaders getting generous payouts while their employees lose everything. Again and again, we are told by the world around us, the world is not as it should be. This world, God's word tells us, is under God's judgment. We have rejected God and now we see the consequences of that all around us in injustice, in sickness, in cruelty, ultimately in death. I hope we can see here that prayer for Moses is not a retreat from those truths. It's not some mystical way out of suffering. It acknowledges that suffering and brings it before God. Prayer for Moses takes place in the real world. Before moving on, though, we need to think briefly how Moses' words apply specifically to Christians today. Because we've seen that Moses acknowledges that all the days of the Israelites in the desert passed away under God's wrath. But surely that isn't true of a Christian. And it is important. We need to make a distinction between Christians today and the Israelites But then, in the most ultimate sense, a Christian is someone who has been rescued from God's wrath. A Christian is someone for whom Christ has died. And at the cross, Jesus took the wrath of God that every Christian deserved onto himself so that we do not have to face God's wrath when he comes again. As Paul puts it in Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And that's a truth to celebrate. That's a truth to rejoice in. But we do still need to listen to Moses' prayer here. Christians still live in this world. And as we've seen, this world is under God's judgment. We still see the consequences of that sin all around us. And we need to acknowledge the truth that Christians will get sick. Christians will experience loneliness and pain in this world. Christians do suffer loss. We are not in heaven yet. We are not in the promised land yet. And like Moses, we pray to God in a dying world. So the Israelites have been rescued from slavery, but they still suffer the consequences of the fall in the desert. And Christians have been rescued from God's wrath ultimately, but we do still suffer here and now in a fallen world. We aren't in heaven yet. That is a strong message of the first half of this psalm. We aren't free from sin yet. And those are vital truths for us to acknowledge. So, so far, this is a sobering prayer of Moses. A prayer born out of a lifetime following God, but seeing the effects of sin all around him. And we, like Moses, can't shy away from that. We can't hide from those truths. That this is a world under God's judgment. But I want us to see that Moses' prayer does not end there. And neither can we. Up to verse 11, we have seen that Moses prays to an eternal God, just as Christians do. And that he lives in a dying world, just as Christians do. And for the first half of the psalm, there seems to be a huge divide between the eternal God of verses 1 and 2 and human experience of verses 3 to 11. And it's a divide that seems impassable. And the eternity of God in verses 1 to 2 seems to offer little comfort to frail human beings here and now. Like Moses, like the Israelites, like us. But then, in verse 12, Moses' prayer moves on from a necessary acknowledgement of life in a fallen world to look to the difference that the eternal God makes in the lives of those who know him and who have been rescued by him. See, Moses doesn't shy away from the dying world, but he also knows that the God he trusts in will never let that dying world have the final say for his people. And that is a great comfort for us. You see, in verses 3 to 11, after acknowledging God's judgment, Moses finally addresses God directly in verse 12. And we quickly see that the judging God that Moses prays to up to this point is also the compassionate God. And that is what makes prayer possible. See, if God were only a judge, Moses wouldn't dare to approach him. But see verse 13. Relent, O Lord. How long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. See, for the first time in this prayer, Moses addresses God as the Lord, capital letters. And that's the translation of the name God had given to the Israelites for himself. The name Yahweh, the covenant God, the God who rescues his people, the God who calls them into relationship with himself. See, in verse 13, Moses acknowledges God is not just eternal. He is also personal. God is not just the judge of the world. He is also the rescuer 
of everyone who places their trust in him. See, Moses can pray to the eternal God because Moses is in a relationship with that God. A relationship that God initiated. God called Moses and chose him. And God invites Moses to pray to him. And that was a precious truth for Moses. And it is a precious truth for us. God invites us to pray and he promises to respond to those prayers. So what does Moses pray for here? In verse 12, he prays for wisdom. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And again, that is such an apt prayer to follow on from the first half of the psalm. In response to that truth of verses 3 to 11, that life is short, that we do not know how long any of us have here on earth, Moses prays that he and the other Israelites would number their days aright, that they would make the most of the time that God had given to them. Like Moses, we need to acknowledge that. We do not know how long our lives will be. Our lives are in God's hands and we need to ask him for wisdom to make the most of them. The question we need to be constantly asking ourselves is how can I, with the personality God has given me, the opportunities God has given me, best glorify him and make him known to others? That might be through our jobs, that might be through our families, our friendship groups, But we need to pray to God that we would be wise in how we live. That we would number our days aright. That we would delight in God and display his glory in our world. That's what Moses is praying for here. For wisdom to understand himself. To make the most of the life God has given him. And then in verse 13, Moses prays for forgiveness. Have compassion on your servants. And again, we need to see this today. We are all dependent on God for mercy and we all need God's forgiveness throughout our lives. See, like the Israelites, you may belong to God. You may be following God. But like them, you will still sin every day of your life and you need God's compassion and forgiveness every day of your life. But the great encouragement from this prayer is that our God is a compassionate God. God revealed himself in that to Moses back in Exodus 33. He said, I am the gracious and compassionate God. And he's revealed himself to us as gracious and compassionate by revealing himself in Jesus. See, the root of the English word compassion is to suffer with someone, to suffer alongside someone. And because of Jesus, we know far more of God's compassion than even Moses did. We know we pray to a compassionate God because we pray to a God who is familiar with weakness and suffering. In the person of Jesus, the eternal God of verses 1 and 2 came down and entered into the dying world of verses 3 to 11 to transform it and to show mercy to it and to us. And when we're struggling with sin, when we are suffering in our lives in this fallen world, we need to remember that we have a great high priest who has gone before us, who was tempted in every way, 
yet is without sin, who gave himself up for us that we might be forgiven and have new life with his Father in heaven. See, we've seen that God does judge the world. We see that all around us in the news today. But we need also to see that God is also showing his mercy and his compassion in our world today. All around this world, God is rescuing people from their sin, from his judgment, from an eternity without him. Because there are Christians in every single country in the world. We heard of Inser already this morning, brought to faith in Christ out of an atheist background. See, sometimes those Christians are small in number, sometimes they are persecuted, often they are struggling, but God is still saving people and rescuing people in this world. Just as he revealed himself to Moses as Yahweh, the God who set slaves free. So that is our God today, a God who rescues slaves like us and sets them free. So we pray to a compassionate God and that is our great encouragement when we do pray. But finally, in verses 14 to 17, we see the greatest difference that knowing God makes to our lives in this dying world. And that is that we are headed to a glorious future. Let me just read. We see the precious words Moses prayed on behalf of his people. Verses 14 to 17. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. You see, Moses' prayer doesn't stop in the present. It ends with a longing for the future. And it's a longing for God. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. Moses knows that only God can satisfy his deepest longings and that God will only do that fully when he sees God face to face. Augustine wrote, You make us for yourself and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. That's what Moses is saying here. The more we see of Christ here and now, the more we see the truth of that. Even now we can see that Christ is the only one who can satisfy our longings for love, for acceptance, for forgiveness, for community. And as Christians, through the work of the Holy Spirit, God graciously lets us experience something of that satisfaction here and now. But there will always be dissatisfaction in this life. We still struggle with sin in a world that rejects God. And like Moses, we need to look ultimately for our hope in the future that God has prepared for his people. God will satisfy us. He will bring us to a full understanding of who he is. He lets us glimpse that now. But to misquote Paul slightly, our present experiences of satisfaction are not worth comparing with the experience of joy and delight 
and life that will be ours in the new creation when we see Jesus in all his glory, when we see our glorious God face to face. Verse 15 says, Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. We do face struggle in this life. But to quote Paul correctly this time, that is still not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. See, what Moses is praying here, he's acknowledging that the future God has for his people will actually be worth the wait. A world free of sin. A world free of death. A world free of suffering. A world where we will see God. See, verses 16 to 17 tell us that, that, God, that Moses wanted to see God's face. And elsewhere in Exodus we learn, God told him he couldn't. Moses was too sinful. God was too holy. He could not see Moses, God sorry, face to face. But Moses also knew that the day was coming when he would. And Moses longed for that. Verse 17, May the favour of the Lord our God rest upon us. Or another rendering is, May the beauty of the Lord our God rest upon us. Every single longing of our heart will be satisfied by the loving and gracious God. And that is what kept Moses going in the desert. And that is what keeps us going in our lives. So he wants to think for a moment. If the psalm ended at verse 11, we would have no hope. The eternal God is up there. We are dying here. And we suffer and we die. I want to suggest, even if this psalm ended at verse 13, the picture wouldn't be massively different. We could pray that God would have mercy on us. We could pray that God would have compassion. But without a greater assurance of that, we would struggle to remain faithful when trials come, when struggle comes. And sadly, I think that there are too many of us who do stop at verse 13 in our prayers. We ask God to show mercy and bless us now. But if that doesn't come, we then give up hope. We think, well, well prayer is useless. But you see, we need to see that the psalm does not end at verse 13. It goes on to rejoice in our future hope. And that is what will help us live for God in this world. See, the hope of a new creation that Christ will bring about, it's not just pie in the sky when you die. It is a food that sustains us in this life. It is a food that will keep us trusting in Christ and rejoicing in him even while we suffer. See, in that new creation, we will be free from the death and judgment we see around us. The Lord will finally be our dwelling place. The Lord will finally be the home that we have longed for. Our eyes will see his beauty and we will also see that everything he has done is right and good. And even verse 17 tells us, the works of our hands will be established. I don't know how you feel you are as a Christian, if you are a Christian. If you feel you're very good at, you're very good at it. If you feel you're a good Christian. See, what this verse tells us is the stumbling 
nature of our Christian life. The stuttering nature of our devotion and worship of God here and now will fully be established in that new creation. Establish the work of our hands. We want to love God more, but we always fail. In the future, we will love God as we should. We will be consumed with love for him because he will establish the work we begin in a stumbling way here and now. This is a prayer of hope that Moses offers up in the wilderness. And as I was thinking about this psalm, I was thinking about the end of 1 Corinthians 13, when Paul names those three great characteristics of the Christian life, faith, hope, and love. And Paul tells us the greatest of them is love. See, we need faith here and now, in a dying world, to see that God is good and to trust in him. We need hope here and now. Hope to sustain us in a dying world. But the thing is, we will not need either faith or hope in the new creation. Because we will see God. We will see Christ. Our faith will have been rewarded and our hope will have shown itself to have been true. But there will always be a need for love. Love for the God who has rescued us as we see him for who he is. Love for the God who reveals himself in the person of Jesus. Love for the God who has satisfied our every longing in Christ. See, on this Remembrance Day, we remember the past. But this prayer of Moses doesn't end at the past. It urges us to remember the future. Remember the future that is in store for you if you are trusting in Christ. Remember that so you will have the strength and the joy you need to live for Christ and to keep trusting in him so that you will see his face in the home that he has prepared for us.